third chapter of the book of Romans is where I'd like for you to turn that New Testament you have. And you're going to need your Bible this morning, so I'll encourage you to just leave that on your lap, opened at the third and fourth chapters of the epistle to the Romans. And then we'll be referring to the passage that Lee and Demetrius read in the second chapter of Ephesians. We all, or most of us, suffer from an addiction. We are addicts. Most of us are addicted to the same thing. And we've tried everything we can to break the addiction, but nothing seems to work. As a matter of fact, we kind of encourage one another in this addiction because, frankly, in America, it's not looked upon as something bad. I'm referring to, the, to our addiction to work. There's so much to do. If you get anything today, you have to work for it. If you want a car, you have to work for it. If you want a nice car, you have to work hard for it. If you want a luxury car, you have to work twice as hard. If you want a nice home, you have to really work for it. A friend of mine is buying a house in the Metroplex. He's paying over $100,000 for his house. And he said that um, he couldn't... Uh, get the contractor, the builder, to correct a few imperfections in the house that he wanted corrected before he signed the contract. And he said he told his wife the other day that if I'm going to work 18 hours a day to have this kind of a home, I want it like I want it. Not only do we honor work, but we have made it our idol. The man who works 40 hours a week, we respect. The man who adds 10 hours to that, we honor or we admire. And the man who adds 10 more to that, we watch because he's up for promotion. We have pedestalized work. Gordon Dahl says that the average middle-class American tends to worship his work, to work at his play, and to play at his worship. Thoreau adds that the laboring man has not time for a true integrity, for he does not day after day have any time except to be a machine. And it caused McNamara to add that probably the greatest malaise in America today is our neurotic compulsion to work Chances are, if you're proud of anything today, it's how hard you work and how long you work. Ken Hamill, Ken Hamill has a book that kind of cuts across the grain of our work mentality entitled, When I Relax, I Feel Guilty. And he says in this book that one's identity is determined by what he does from eight to five. If someone were to ask you, who are you? After you tell him your name and where you're from, you'll probably tell him what you do because the greatest single factor in determining identity, he says, is work. We worship it as the 
basis of human dignity and worth. And even though work has never saved anybody from sin, death, and evil, nor has it ever, he said, unilaterally produced faith, hope, and love, when, love be when work becomes the all-consuming interest, even if it's necessary and good, it is still idolatry. And all of this caused Donald Gray Barnhouse to write as he approached chapter 4 in his marvelous commentary on Romans that man is incurably addicted to trying to do something for his salvation. Then he said, It sure is difficult to get a man to accept the pure doctrine of grace. And I say amen to that. If you talk to somebody today about salvation by grace through faith, he'll probably tell you that's too easy, that's too simple. Tell me something to do. Show me something to give up. Tell me something to buy. It's just too simple just to take salvation as a gift so that man's incurable addiction to doing something for his salvation is the formidable enemy to grace. I want you to think with me this morning about the doctrine of salvation through faith, by grace through faith alone. And I want you to look with me at the grace-faith transaction that's found in the book of Romans, right there in that book that you have open on your lap. And I want you to look at the declaration that's found in the third chapter, verse 28. For we maintain that a man is justified. Now let me give you a definition. Perhaps you're an international student or someone who has really never really understood what that term, that word justification means. Let me tell you what that means. Justification is the sovereign act of God whereby he declares the believing sinner righteous while he's still in the state of sinning. It's the sovereign act of God whereby he declares the believing sinner righteous while he's still in the state of sinning. Now look at verse 28. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And the Good News Bible has it like this. For we conclude that a man is put right with God only through faith and not by doing what the law commands. And the Living Bible makes it even clearer when it says, so it is that we are saved by faith in Christ and not by the good things that we do. Now I want you to know that that cuts across the grain of our work mentality. Why, surely a man is not justified before God apart from the works that he does, apart from the good things that he does. And you might say, well, if that is true, then that, pers that person must be at least somewhat deserving of that justification. He must at least somewhat deserve it. I want to show you, I want to personalize to you, for you, what this kind of man is like who has been justified in verse, 30, verse 28 of the third chapter. Would you just glance down to, chapter, to 
uh, verse 10 of chapter 3, same chapter. And if you'll read verses 10 through 8, you'll see the kind of man that is described here that is justified here by grace through faith. Now, I was going to read that, but I don't really have time to do it. But I want you to look at that because that man is totally depraved, totally undeserving, separated from God. He's not even in the least bit religious. So that a man who has this kind of right standing with God will gain that right standing or gains that right standing only as on the basis of a gift. Ah, there's the word, on the basis of a gift. Now let your eyes glance down to verse 24 and look at that. Being justified as a gift by His grace. It's interesting that the word gift and the word grace come from the same root word. And what he's saying is, that justification or salvation is a gift of God's grace. It's a grace gift through redemption. And that's a new word to this passage. So I want to define that word for you. The word redemption means to set free from bondage by the payment of a price. It means to ransom. A few years ago, Weyerhaeuser, the Weyerhaeuser tycoons and in, in Washington gave $200,000 to ransom their son, kidnapped. Several years ago, Frank Sinatra paid $250,000, a quarter of a million dollars, to ransom his son, Frank Jr. Some of you remember that. It means to be set free as the result of a payment. Now, Jesus paid the ransom by his life, so that Paul says, the work has already been done. The payment has already been made in full. The only way you can come is through the ransom. Now, some of you might say, well, can you give me a for instance? Can you give me an illustration of that? I hear these terms, ransom and justification and redemption. Can you give me an illustration or a for instance? I believe it was Spurgeon who said, who first called illustrations in sermons like he called them windows through which light came. Can you, can you give me a window through which some light could come to this, to this passage? Can you give me a for instance? John Gregory has written a book on the principles of education and one of the principles he said is that truth must be taught by truth that's already known and so you're asking can you give me some truth that's already known that will shed some light on this difficult doctrine of justification by grace well I think I can in the fourth chapter verse 1 now we're to the fourth chapter verse 1 Paul says, okay, how about Abraham as an illustration? Now, he's pretty well known to the Jewish race, the Jewish nation. As a matter of fact, he was as well known to the Jews as George Washington is to the, to the American. He was the father of that nation. Now, he says in verse 1, if justification, if, if Abraham's justification or right standing with God came as the result of his works, 
then he has something to boast about, but not before God. And then he says in verse 3, but he says, what says the Scripture? What does the Scripture say about Abraham's justification? Why, he said, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. And that word reckoned means to credit to the account. It's an accounting term. And it means that Abraham believed God, and so God canceled out his debt and credited to his account the righteousness of God. And I want you to get a hold of that. It is as though one day God turned the ledger page and found Abraham's name on it, and he took off that page the sin of Abraham, for he was a guilty sinner, and he transferred that over to the page that had the name of the coming Christ on it and put his sin there, and he took the righteousness off of the page that had Jesus' name on it, and he transferred it over to Abraham. Now, what is the Scripture he's talking about there? If he says that the Scripture says that Abraham believed God, it's the 15th chapter of Genesis. I don't want you to turn to that, but I want to tell you what happened. There was a time when God came to Abraham, and Abraham was approaching a hundred years of age. His wife Sarah was approaching 90, and she was barren, had never had a child. And God said to Abraham, I'm going to make you plentiful. I'm going to, out of your loins, out of your seed, I'm going to make a nation that is as great as the number of the stars. Can you remember when you were a little child going out at night and counting the stars, you know, and you got to a billion or a zillion, you know, and you just lost count? And God said to this man who had no children by Sarah, his wife, you're going to have so many children, you won't be able to count them. Now, Abraham stood there that night, and he looked out at those stars, and he counted to a zillion of them, and he looked within himself and, within, and, and around him, and he realized that he had nothing in himself that could produce that, and he had nothing in his life could bring that to pass. So the Scripture says that he believed God. He trusted him. He accepted his word. He claimed the promise of God. And the scripture said that at that moment, God declared him righteous. Now, the moment comes when a man stands before God and he realizes he sinned against God. And he realizes that within himself, there is nothing there that can produce righteousness. So what does he do? He believes God and trusts him, and at that moment he's reckoned as righteous. And verses 4 through 8 kind of gives some clarification of that. For he says, and he skips over to the term of the wage. Now you see there's a difference, of course, between a wage and a gift. He said if a man works for his righteousness, works, for salvation, then his wage is paid. If he believes, he's declared righteous. I don't know of an employer anywhere on the 15th of the month would ever take a paycheck and uh, go to somebody and say, now I want to give you a special gift. 
um, because I love you and I'm generous, I want to give you this gift, this paycheck for this, this month. I don't know anybody to do that, and I don't know any employee that would accept that. The employee would say, now, wait a minute. You're not doing me a favor. I earned that. The other day, my phone rang, and our neighbor said, we have some pecans over here on the ground, and uh, if your children want to come over here and pick these pecans up, they can have them. And so my daughter uh, said, uh, Daddy, if I go over there and pick up those pecans, would you take them down and sell them for me? I said, sure, I'll just buy them myself. And she asked me what I'd pay. It wasn't enough, so we negotiated a little bit, and we agreed to the terms. And she went next door to uh, pick up pecans, and uh, Margaret said she was working out there and wetting like I am right now in this hot auditorium, and face got red, and uh, she picked up about 10 pounds of pecans. And so when I got in, it was payday, you know, it was pay time. And she said, Daddy, I was hot and thirsty and tired, but said all I could think about was that money I was going to make. And so I reached in my pocket, and I was going to make the payment here, the payday. And Todd showed up for his part of the bargain. Now, if I paid Michelle, I was going to give her the money that she earned. Now, Todd's would have been a different story. That'd have been a gift, you see. And he was standing around waiting on his, uh, his pay, and it was no pay. It was a gift. Michelle was somewhat insulted that Todd was even hanging around because he didn't earn it. Now the passage says, if you've earned this, then, then you don't accept it as a gift. You've worked for it. You labored for it. But verse 5 says, God is saying to you, I'm giving you a don't touch it package. Don't do it yourself kit. I've done it all for you. I've paid the price. I've done the work. You don't have to earn it. I'm offering it to you as a gift. All you've got to do is receive it. Now, that's mind-boggling, and it goes completely across the grain to our work mentality. It's illogical to that. Suppose you invited the Tiddles over to your house for dinner tomorrow night, and you had it all fixed up, a big old thick ribeye steak, medium well, little hint, and there was a big old baked potato. I mean, when you cut into it, it just kind of smoked, you know, just steamed up, and you had a lot of butter to put on it. And a crisp green salad with some blue cheese dressing <laughs> and, uh, and some hot homemade rolls and, af and, a, and a jug of iced tea. Are you getting hungry? You bet. And, 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 and to top it all off, you had some of that lemon ice box pie. And we ate until we were just about to burst. And when we finished eating and got ready to go, I said, okay, what I owe you? You know, that'd be an insult, wouldn't it? What I owe you? And you say, you don't owe me anything. Why, well, we invited you over to our home to feed you. Well, I want to pay you. And I pull out a $20 bill and I lay it on the coffee table. I say, I'm not going to leave here till you take this money. Not only would it be an insult, it'd be the worst insult. 
For not only did I reject the offer of your gifts, I insisted that I would pay for it at your, against your pleading. You know what I'm convinced? That God is more brokenhearted by our attempts to labor for our salvation than he is at our defiant sinning and rebellion against his will. God said, why in the world would you try to labor for something that I've already paid for? God's heart breaking because we want to pay for something that he's already paid for in the purchase of the blood of his own son. And Paul said, if Abraham's not an illustration enough, let me bring in the big guns. Let me talk about David. And so he quotes from Psalm 32, that marvelous cry of David of rejoicing and praise to God because of his grace that followed on the heels of his sin with Bathsheba. The grace-faith transaction in Romans. Now with your Bible in hand, would you turn to the grace-faith transaction of Ephesians? And we'll hurry to the end of that. This is the kind of final focus upon man's incurable addiction to doing something for his salvation. In the first few verses of this second chapter, Paul says you can't, you can't do anything to earn your salvation, for you're dead. That's absolute hopelessness and helplessness. It means that a man dead is totally dependent upon someone outside of himself if life is going to be given. And so Paul says, you're separated from God and you're alienated from Him and you're dead in your trespasses and sins and there's nothing you can do to make it any different. But, he says, verse 4, but God. Just in the nick of time, there's that invasion of God into the text. Man is drifting away, man is hopelessly lost, man is helplessly dead, but God. Some of these days I'm going to preach a sermon on that phrase, that term, that phrase. Halford Luckett said it's the greatest word in the Bible, but God. It's not but God and man, me, it's not but God and works, it's not but God and money, it's just God. And he says in that marvelous fourth verse and following that God has intervened into the life of a man at the point of man's desperate need that even when he was dead, not even religious, God brought grace for salvation. It started with him and it ended with him so that all of the glory belongs to God only. Now, you might say this morning, well, I can kind of believe that salvation is by grace alone, but why is it that way? Now, I'm going to give you the answer. It's a profound answer as to why God has chosen for it to be this way. The answer is nobody knows. Why would God do it like that? Nobody knows. 
There is a verse, there is a passage in the seventh chapter of Deuteronomy that says, listen to this, God did not set his grace upon you nor choose you because you are more than numbers, more in number than any other people, for you were the fewest of all people. But because he loves you, I, 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 that's the answer, isn't it? Why did God do it this way? Because he loves us. Why did Jesus come in the person of a man, emptying himself of heaven's glory? Because he loves us. And why did he suffer the abuse of mankind on earth? Because he loves us. And why did he die on Calvary's cross? Because he loves us. So why did God purchase a place in heaven for us in the death of his Son and offer it to us as a gift apart from our works? Because he loves us. And the real kicker of this passage is verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, not as the result of works, lest any man should boast. And somebody gives us a little insight onto that, in, into that verse when he says that God demonstrated his love, that's grace. Man declares his need, that's faith. And man takes his gift, that's salvation. There's an Old Testament story of grace that I want to share with you that I'm through. It's a story about a man, a young boy named Mephibosheth. That's a kind of a tongue twister, Mephibosheth. There was a time when the Jews lived under the monarchy under the dominion of a king by the name of Saul. And Saul had a son named Jonathan. And Jonathan had a son named Meshibosheth. And it just so happened that both Jonathan and Saul died at the same time. And as usual, as normally, the new king, when he comes to take over, just cleans out the, other, the old throne, the old monarchy, just kills everybody. This little boy of Jonathan's was five years old at the time. And his nanny, in the fear when she found that Saul and Jonathan were both dead, she grabbed up this little boy, five years old, and she was running with him. And she dropped him. And he suffered a spinal injury, probably. He, he became lame in both feet. But she picked him up anyway, and she ran. She fled. She fled down to a, to a country that was desert-like, barren. It was called... In the Hebrew, no pasture, no, no fruit, no fertility. 
barren wilderness. And there they hid for years. One day, David was on the throne and he said, Is there somebody in Saul's family upon whom I can show the kindness of God? And a man in the court said, There is a boy. He was five years old when you came to the throne. He's lame in both feet. And he said, bring him to me. I want to, I want to show him the kindness of God. And they went and got him. There he was, leaning on his crutches for the first time as a young man, standing in the court of David. And David said, I want to give you all that your grandfather Saul possessed. I want to give you riches. I want to give you a place to stay. I want you to eat at my table. And the boy fell on his face, and this is what he said. Why would you show me kindness? I am a dead dog. And David didn't even pay, he didn't even give attention to what he said. He just called for the servant, and he said, I want you to declare to him, give him everything that belongs to Saul and give him all the treasures that belong to him, and I want him to eat at my table. Can you imagine what that was like? In your mind, visualize sitting at David's table. Out of the study come Tamar, beautiful Tamar, Samuel, and Absalom. And around the table in that marvelous court are the the leaders of the nation. And on that table is the bounty prepared. And around that table sit the greatest. And there sits this young man lame in both feet. And I like what the last verse of the last of the ninth chapter of Second Samuel says about it. It says in the last phrase that he sat and ate every day at David's table, period. Then kind of like a postscript, it says, and he was lame in both feet. And he came from the wilderness to the king's table. From the wilderness he came to the king's bounty, and he had nothing in himself that deserved it. I ask you this morning to come to the master's table. I ask you to come from the wilderness land to all that God has for you and just take it as a gift. I ask you to come and sit lame in both feet at the king's table and just take this gift. For God offers you everything he has as a gift purchased by his son. Would you bow your head with me? There are some of you this morning who have never accepted Christ as your personal Savior. The gift of salvation is yours today for the taking. 
just to receive it, just to come and claim it. Jesus has bought it and paid the price for it. And God offers it to you as a gift. Young men and women, would you come and receive God's gift of salvation today? For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourself, it is the gift of God. Would you come and take his gift? Father, I pray this morning that you'll help us to have the courage to quit trying to do something and just come to receive your precious gift of eternal life. And I pray that men and women, boys and girls who do not know Jesus Christ will come today to receive the gift of eternal life. And for those of us who need to make rededication of life or join the church today, unite with this family, God, we'll come under the pleading of the Holy Spirit. Let us come today, Father, because I ask in Jesus' name.